Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Did you know that our pursuit of precision in timepieces changed how we sleep? That the invention of the railroad helped to commercialize Christmas? And that a young chemist exposed how Polaroid's cameras were used to create passbooks that tracked black citizens in apartheid South Africa? This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. These are all stories told in Anissa Ramirez's most recent book, The Alchemy of Us, How Humans and Matter Transformed One Another. Ramirez is a material scientist, and she tells stories about the lesser-known inventors, the materials they used, and how these objects influence culture and society. She's also a self-proclaimed science evangelist. So let's start there. I asked her to explain what that means. I know it's a provocative term. Um, what I'm trying to do is repurpose the word evangelist because there's other definitions, meaning one being someone who's very zealous about sharing good news. And for me, the good news is how important science is and that how everyone can have a seat at the table. So evangelists also say that in sharing the good news, they feel called to do that, that there's a, a passion behind what they do. What is it that excites you and drives you on this mission to be a science evangelist? Well, I wanted to be a scientist since I was four years old and I accomplished it. And I was one of those little girls who, when I found something out, I would run home and share it with my family. And I still have that feeling today, although I try and do it more broadly, not just with my family, with, but just the general public and share with them the exciting things that are going on in laboratories all over the world, but also the wonders of the world. So, so I guess the passion comes that I've still tapped into that excited four-year-old girl who's really excited about science. We have lots of conversations on this show about the power of words and how they convey different meanings. And sometimes when we hear the word scientist, we have a very narrow view. And you said you've known since you were four that you wanted to be a scientist. What did it mean for you at four to want to be a scientist? And how does that connect to the work that you're doing today in really broadening our understanding of science? I think what I tapped into when I was very young is the desire. I was very curious and I learned early on that scientists were very curious. They asked a lot of questions. I asked a lot of questions. And so that's what that's what struck me. Um, later on, of course, I stumbled onto the stereotype of what a scientist looked like. But because that love of science was embedded in me very, very early, it didn't really move me away or, or sway me away from wanting to be a scientist because I knew very early on that being curious is what the job of a scientist was, and that's what I was. You are the author of an award-winning book. Congratulations on that, first of all. I see the nominations keep coming in because it's such an important book. And that book is called The Alchemy of Us. And in that book, you explore eight innovations and inventions, and you also connect them to the human experience. So it's not enough to just say, look at these cool inventions, but this is how it connects us in a powerful way. Share with our listeners some of the inventions that you explore and also why you chose those particular inventions. Well, it is eight inventions. And 
to be honest, it's stealthily a material science book, which is what I am. I'm a material scientist and we're interested in stuff. But talking about stuff by itself is not exciting enough. So I talk about what these things made. And so if I were to talk to a material scientist, I would say this book is about quartz, steel, copper, silver films, carbon, magnetic materials, glass, and silicon. And specifically, I'm talking about how they made timepieces, railroads, telegraphic cables, photographic film, light bulb filaments, hard disks, scientific glassware, and also uh, silicon transistors. Uh, but I do more than just talk about those materials uh, because I have books like that. And I really think that those books are just kind of preaching to the choir. What I do in my book is I tell you the story behind the invention. You sit down and you learn about the crazy people who made these things possible, like the mortician who actually made a device that put us on the pathway to the silicon transistor. And then also in the book, I also share with you what was the outcome. And sometimes it's an unintended or surprising outcome that came about because of that invention. Usually when scientists create something, they just build something and they're pretty proud of what they do. And they say, okay, look what I built. But what I do is I take the, I look further out in history and say, well, look what happened when this was made. So when Samuel Morse made his telegraph, he was embarking on creating a fast way to rapidly communicate. But what we know now is that the telegraph actually had a hand in shaping language. So that's what I'm interested in doing. Not only unfolding the different inventions, the materials that made them possible, but also how these inventions shaped us. It's a fantastic approach to this, to something that I think for many people, it may seem I can't really grasp how this all came together. And the beauty of your book is that you connect this historical context to these inventions, but also connect them to perhaps what we're seeing today. And one of the things that we're seeing, Anissa, is in this fury of the holiday season, all of these concerns about supply chains and when things come in is how the invention of the railroad helped to commercialize Christmas. Talk to us about that and that connection. Well, that's a great question. It's very timely. So we're worried about supply chains and not being able to get stuff right now. But Christmas, the commercialization of Christmas specifically, came from a point of view where we had too much stuff and we had to figure out how to get people to buy it. So there was this holiday that Christians celebrated, which was more about meeting with the family and, and being thankful. Well, that holiday, which we know is Christmas today, was transformed into a gift-giving occasion. See, the Industrial Revolution made it possible for us to make a lot of stuff. And soon we had to figure out how to get people to, to buy all that stuff. We also had to find a way for the stuff to get to them. And that's when the railroads were, became very important because before traveling took a long time. Well, we used to travel by stagecoach or we would go by the canals, by ship, but the railroads connected the United States in a new way. And so products that were made in California could be sent by train all the way to us over here in Connecticut. And so that made it possible for us to ship things, to move things across the country. And so that was one of the last things that was needed in creating this wonderful holiday what we, that we know as Christmas. I think as a society, we have a tendency to focus on the good ways that inventions can be used and how they can change and shape behavior for the good. But in your book, you also talk about the political implications of these inventions and how the developments in, say, the Polaroid camera made it possible to track the uh, movement of Black people in South Africa. 
how did that technology, that invention become intertwined with what we know was a devastating institutional practice that permanently changed the course of that country? To be honest, I loved instant film made by Polaroid growing up. Uh, my grandfather had one of these cameras and it was fantastic. A lot of my childhood memories are captured in that white iconic frame. I think I have a picture of my, a birthday and first communions. But what I did not know is that around the same time, there were people on the other side of the planet in South Africa who had their pictures taken by film created by Polaroid and they weren't too happy about it. And what I found while I was writing The Alchemy of Us is that Polaroid Corporation based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, was selling its technology to the South African government. And th their technology was being used to buttress this uh, nefarious political system of apartheid, which oppressed black South Africans. And it ends up that every black South African had to carry with them a passbook. A passbook was a 20 page document that contained information about where this person could go, where they could not go. Anybody could ask them to see their passbook. If they didn't have their passbook, they would be fined. If they couldn't pay the fine, they would be jailed. But in the middle of this passbook was a picture made by Polaroid. Now, there were two employees at Kodak, Caroline Hunter and, and Ken Williams, who had discovered this. And they didn't think that this should be the way that this technology should be used. And so in an instant, they became the Polaroid Revolutionary Workers Movement with the desire to get Polaroid to stop selling its technology to South Africa. It took seven years. And of course, they were fired and had a tough time getting jobs in Cambridge, Massachusetts. But eventually, Polaroid withdrew. And this was a significant because when Polaroid withdrew, this was sort of like a Jenga piece, uh, that game. Like if you pull out a one piece, the whole thing kind of dismantles. This started the dismantling of the apartheid system. So here's a technology that was much beloved on the one side of the world in the United States and one of the top Christmas gifts that everybody loved. But on the other side of the planet, it was used as a tool of oppression. Anissa, I'm totally taken by this. As someone who grew up in that era, who remembers the divestment efforts of you know college students demanding that they're institutions divest from the companies and corporations that were contributing to that. But I never heard this story until I read your book. And it also raises this question of, of ethics, right? Some people want science to be value-free, that if we make this invention, this discovery, we can't really control or influence how it's used. But you're showing the power of workers and people within that space to say, no, we have to think about the implications. Do you see spaces where those conversations for inventions and, and how those inventions may be used or misused by government, do you see things happening now that we should reflect on that example that you mentioned of the connection to South Africa? Well, I think, I think workers have a lot of power if they organized. And I think we're starting to see that we've seen with significant search engines like Google, people are starting to push back. With Facebook, we're seeing that people are starting to push back. A couple of whistleblowers are pointing to how, how ethics is, is not being attended to in these technologies. There's some legislation that's going through and some politicians are actually pressing different technologies like Instagram and Facebook and Google about how their technologies are going out into the world. And I'm very pleased that people are reading The Alchemy of Us and they're starting to see that this is old and that it's really up to us that we need to push back and make sure that these technologies serve humanity well. 
So it's an important discussion. It's it's very old, and but we are seeing it in its in our modern day too. What would you say is the most amazing discovery that you came across in writing this book and thinking about the story that you would tell in the alchemy of us? Well, we hit upon it with the the Polaroid story. What I wanted to say is that if you read books written by folks who write about Polaroid, you won't see this story. And so why I felt this story was significant is because it was there was an attempt to bury it. And it was by spending a lot of time in the archives that I was able to uncover it. I was also able to meet Caroline Hunter, who is a significant character in this chapter. And she pointed me in the key directions to really uncover the story. So, so bringing Polaroid's history, this nefarious history to, to the fore was important because, again, it, it speaks to what's going on today with other newer technologies. But it was such a privilege to write this book because as a scientist, I learned that my own education in science was just was was incomplete. I didn't know about these key characters in my classes. We never talked about the outcomes of the things that we make. And to be quite honest, we never hit on the history. So uh, you're asking me to figure out what is my favorite. And, and Polaroid is one of my favorites, but it's really hard because for each chapter, there's something that I learned or there was some adventure that I had in making that story come come forward. Like, for example, I had to go out to England to get information about J.J. Thompson, who is the inventor or the discoverer, rather, of the electron. And I have to say that it was very hard to get his story because he was just a hard nut to crack. There was very little written about him. And it was sort of like in the 11th hour when I when I was I had about 30 minutes before I had to get a train to get back to London that I found the key thing that was going to make the story sing. So I've got stories like that in the making of the book that made this book possible. Coming up, more from author and science evangelist Dr. Anissa Ramirez on how STEM education may be missing the mark. We should be really focusing on how to create problem solvers, creative problem solvers, and then ultimately figuring out what is the real mission of STEM. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Dr. Gladys Mae West was a mathematician who worked for the U.S. Navy for 42 years. She was part of a team whose work became the basis for what we now know as the Global Positioning System, or GPS. She grew up on a farm in Virginia during segregation, and she excelled in her studies, especially math. Here she is from a 2018 U.S. Navy profile. So it's time to go to college. Well, since you're doing well in all subjects, you can major in math. Graduated after four years. I have applied for jobs in the government. I got hired in Darwin in 1956. At the same time that we were coming to work here, they were also bringing in a large computer. We hadn't had any computer teaching or knowledge, so we had to master this job that they want us to do. So we had to learn how to program and code for this big computer. My part in the global positioning system would be working more with the orbit over the water. A lot goes into the scientific computation. So the different people who did uh, civilian applications learned to use the database that we generated. And that was the foundation that GPS was built on. 
In 2018, Dr. West was inducted into the U.S. Navy Hall of Fame, and she'll be the focus of an upcoming children's book by today's guest, Anissa Ramirez. Ramirez is a material scientist and author of The Alchemy of Us, How Humans and Matter Transformed One Another. Anissa has long focused on educating young people about lesser-known scientific heroes, and her children's books will profile Black inventors like Gladys West and Jim West, the inventor of the microphone. I asked her why it's important for kids to learn these stories. I was inspired a couple of years ago when that movie Hidden Figures came out. I don't know about you, but there was a scene where there was a whole bunch of black women with clipboards and notebooks and pencils walking down the hallway. And I have to say, I almost cried because I had never seen so many technical women in one space. And this is a this is a narrative. This is a, a movie. And I said, if if that image can impact me and I am a scientist, what I need to do is I need to see if I can find other hidden figures so that children will, will see that science is for them, too. And so I'm working on children's books right now that are nonfiction picture books about little known black inventors. Uh, one is Jim West, and he's actually making this call possible because he made the microphone, this microphone that you're using, that I'm using. There are two billion that come out every year. He created it. Many people don't know about him. He found an unusual material. It's called an electret. It's a strange word. And all that it says is it's a material that stores electric charge. And what's great about that is that because of that, it doesn't require a battery to work. So you can make something very, very small. And so that's why his invention is in, in our cell phones, in, in my laptop. It's everywhere, in toys. And uh, he did this stuff and he made this invention in the late 50s, early 60s. But most people don't know about him. And so I wrote a children's book about him, and that should be coming out with Candlewick maybe next year. I also am writing a book on Gladys West, and most people don't know about her either, but she gets you where you need to go because she's the math, black woman mathematician who's pioneered GPS. And she did, did this with sophisticated mathematics using computers, and they wouldn't look like computers to in our day, but using computers that were less powerful than what we had have in our watch. And she was able to do significant things to make it possible for us to know where satellites are going. And once satellites knew where they were going, they would give us a better sense of where we are going because they can talk to our cell phones and guide us on a map with GPS. So, so those are two. There are a few others as well that I'm working on to make sure that people see that, and not just kids, but parents see that there are a lot of inventions that surround us that were made by people of color. And if we tell these stories, then everyone feels a little bit more connected to the technologies that are around them. Are there any Connecticut inventors that we should know about or that you focus on in these books? Oh, well, one of my favorites is Sarah Boone, and she's actually who put me on the path of this story of bringing out these hidden figures. I'll tell you her story. I was working on The Alchemy of Us. I was working on the chapter about Samuel Morse, who's a local inventor for New Haven. And I was over in the New Haven Free Public Library in their local history section. And I'm looking at the local history section for local inventors, a lot of local stuff. And as I open up the folder, this slip of paper falls out and it says Sarah Boone. And I say, Sarah Boone, what are you doing here, Sarah Boone? See, I knew who Sarah Boone was. She's an African-American woman who in 1892 got a patent for an invention of the ironing board. And I knew about her, but I had no idea that she was from New Haven. And so that put me on the path to learn more about her, where she lived. 
And so I've been collecting information about her to write her children's book. As you can imagine, a 19th century African-American woman, is hard, it's hard to get archival material. So this may have to be a little bit more on the historical fiction side. But when I discovered her, I also discovered other hidden figures. So, so this really put me on the path to produce these children's books. I'm hearing you talk about your work in archives in England, your work in archives here in the U.S., and in particular in New Haven. And it makes the case in powerful ways, Anissa, about the importance of libraries as spaces of learning, but also as spaces of connection, often in communities who may not have had those connections in other places. How important is it for you and the work that you're doing, the stories that you're telling, how important is it for you to help affirm other communities, but also to lift up those connections of where we are today and the people who made it possible for us to get here? Well, libraries are wonderful places. They're magical places. And my mom would actually say I grew up in a library because I used to go to one after school. But I didn't really care for it. I really wanted to go hang out with my friends. But, you know, we had to spend some time in the library as we waited for our mother, my brothers and I. Now I see that the idea of creating public spaces of libraries is magnificent. I don't know if they go give out Nobel Prizes for ideas for that, but they should because I'm spoiled. I live in New Haven. We have a fantastic library system. It's not just about books. It's about community. It's about learning new trades. It's about getting access to things that you might not have access to if you're not affiliated with a university. And I think we should support libraries because they're, they're a democratic institution. It doesn't matter who you are. You can have access to knowledge and we should support them. The idea of enhancing access, of curating more spaces where people can have access to education is key. And it's been key to the work that you do in the realm of science education. You know, I've been in Connecticut long enough to remember Science Saturdays that you created <laughs> to enhance that access for young people to see an entire world of possibility. But what you say, Anissa, that some people may be surprised about is that the way we're currently doing science education is wrong because it doesn't get to the core of what it should be about. And I say that's surprising because we are bombarded with people saying STEM, STEM, STEM education, and, and maybe they'll drop an A in and say, let's <laughs> add a, a sprinkle of arts to make it STEAM education. How do we make science more accessible and relevant to young people given what you see as a flawed approach right now? Well, I have to say that this comes from my own evolution because I did have a program in New Haven called Science Saturdays, which was based on what I call the three Ds, demonstrations, donuts, and dynamic talks. And the demonstrations were to hook people of all ages and the dynamic talks were uh, mostly by Yale professors who I, who I trained to speak to young audiences. I said, look, you had to strike your talk so that a middle schooler can understand it because that's when people, that's when young people make a decision if science is for them. And it was a great program. I loved it. I did it for seven years. And uh, I often think fondly about that, that organization and it still runs in some fashion today. And it came from my own thinking that when we should, when we show science, we should break down walls. We should make people have access to scientists. And the demonstrations was part of that thinking about making science exciting, providing the hook. 
And there are lots of videos out there where people will explode things. I totally get that. But I think we get stuck there. We should do more than just provide the hook. Once we pull people in, we must show them nuance. We must show how science is done. We must show that science is not just the acquisition of facts that you can spit back out. You know, the human head is equal, you know, is eight pounds. So what? What we should, what we need to do is we actually need to give them tools that they're going to need that the future needs. We need to have imagination, curiosity. We need to have empathy. We need to do much, much more than just hook them and explode things and blow things up. And so I think that's one of the things that's in the informal science area that we need to attack. Now, STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math was well-intentioned. It was designed to put those different topics together as they actually operate in the real world. But we still have this little bit of infighting when someone has a curriculum. People will ask, well, where's the S? Where's the M? I think that's distracting. Again, it should, we should be really focusing on how to create problem solvers, creative problem solvers. Anything that serves that mission is what we need right now for the 21st century. So I think in a, in a couple of ways that STEM is a little stuck because it's still going through those growing pains from going from where things were siloed to things being together, and then ultimately figuring out what is the real mission of STEM. I see the mission of science and science education really connected to life skills and the kinds of skills that we need to really encourage people to be critical thinkers. And I want to share a quote from your book, Save Our Science, How to Inspire a New Generation of Scientists. And in that book, you say standardized testing teaches skills that are counter to the skills needed for the future, such as curiosity, problem solving, and having a healthy relationship with failure. And then you go on to say scientists fail all the time. We just brand it differently. We call it data. (laughs) Talk to us about that idea of curiosity, of trying and failing and learning from it, and how we can bring that more in alignment with the way that we educate young people. In that in that quote, I really wanted to defang failure because children, adults won't try because they're afraid of failing. And so what I like to say is that if you learn something, you haven't failed. Now, I remember when I was a professor back at Yale, I would have top students who wouldn't try something because they were worried about how it would be perceived or that they would fail. In in fact, I found that students that were really good at test taking didn't have the skills that I needed for them to work into the, in the laboratory. And so there's this disconnect. If we if we are making people really good at taking tests, they're afraid to fail. And that's what we need more of. We need people who can pull themselves up, look at things and say, OK, this is what I learned. This has nothing to do with me as a person. This is just an opportunity for me to learn about something. It's just data. But unfortunately, we are in a, in, a, in a time where schools are very much beholden to test taking. There's, there's a lot of things that are linked towards that funding, raises, you know, resources. And so we teach to the test. So I'm, I'm asking people to take an opportunity to, to, to explore that failure is actually your friend and because you're going to need it in the future. Things are not going to work out and you can't take it personally. You have to realize that this is actually a lesson in disguise. And so that's one of the things that I try and pull out that STEM has one of these hidden virtues embedded in it. But unfortunately, we can't tap into it because we're really kind of beholden to making sure that people perform well on tests. That's author and science evangelist Anissa Ramirez. When we return, science is in a 
pickle right now because we have to figure out how to make people understand how important it is. And I'm proposing that stories are the way to, way to do it. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to the show. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today on Disrupted, we're talking with science evangelist and author, Anissa Ramirez. Her most recent book is The Alchemy of Us, How Humans and Matter Transformed One Another. In the midst of the politicization of science around issues like climate change and the global COVID pandemic, I wanted us to focus on this current moment. We are in a new phase of the COVID pandemic, And we've seen over the last 18, 19 months, the power of disinformation and how when we don't trust science, it can have literally deadly consequences for people when their sort of own information or own research or lack of critical thinking can then shape policy and behavior. Do you think that the scientific community has a role to play here or perhaps even an obligation to address how we reach people? so that that critical thinking, that exploration can help us make better choices. Absolutely. And this is probably one of the hardest challenges that science will have. You know, there are big questions, how to solve uh, major diseases, but how to, how to push in a anti-science world. And it's going to require new tools. Um, we can't push by providing more data. People are anti-science. Data does not work. Or when I say data, I mean numbers and statistics. That doesn't work. But what I find to be very interesting and and a a useful tool is to use better stories. And that's the reason why I wrote The Alchemy of Us the way I did. I could have just showed a lot of graphs and statistics and some pictures and things like that. But what I did is I wanted you to just learn along the way with an inventor. I wanted you to learn a little bit about he or she and and how they lived in the world and see what they stumbled on and and see their failings. In fact, I like to focus on a lot of the failings of many of the inventors because I wanted to make them very human. And then when we make them human and we're on the journey along with them, we're able to see how they failed and how they succeeded. And then people will feel people who are reading will see themselves as being able to fail and succeed, that this is the way, this is the way that we go about doing science. But when we flash data and a graph right away uh, as the first way to introduce a concept to someone, we're going to push people away. So science is in a pickle right now because we have to figure out how to make people understand how important it is. And I'm proposing that stories are the way to, way to do it. This connects back to your role as an evangelist, because the role of an evangelist is to not just speak to the choir, but to actually increase the tent to bring more people into the conversation. But Anissa, there's also a risk. And I'm thinking here of scientists who speak out against climate threats or other injustices related to things that we know from what's happening in science. And they're often dismissed as being partisan or being political hacks or getting away from, again, the quote unquote, value-free aspect of science. How do we navigate that terrain in this very divisive, hyper-partisan climate in the U.S., but also, as you said, the need for scientists to communicate differently and more effectively? If I had the answer to that, 
I would, I don't know what I would do, but I think I, life would be easier. I think everyone has a small ax and it's a big tree and everyone should just chop as much as they can, as well as they can with what they have. And yes, it's partisan and it's political and people will push back. Essentially what it is, is that scientists are saying things that are uncomfortable and people don't want to be uncomfortable. We're saying we have to change the way that we live. People don't want to change the way that they live because they like the way that they live and they don't like change. So yeah, we just have to keep changing and saying and pushing as much as we can where we are as often as we can. And that's the only way that we're going to be able to make some change because if we stop, we can be certain what the answer is. So is it hard? Yes. Does it make you unpopular? Yes. Is it important? Yes. Must you continue to do it? Yes. Just use your small ax and keep chopping at that tree. You are currently chopping at the tree that is known the publishing industry. And as we think about the stories that need to be told, the connections that need to be made, there's in this gatekeeping function in the publishing industry that makes it more difficult to not just tell those diverse, inclusive stories, but to also focus on who is telling the stories and who has access to do it. Why take on that in the publishing industry in relation to the work that you're doing? And what are you finding in that space? Well, that's a good question. I don't frame it that way. I frame it that I like to do certain things. And every time I try a new thing, I find out that I'm the only one in the room again. So here I am, a person who's a scientist, a woman of color, and I'm like, why is it that I choose these things where there's very few people who look like me? And it's because I love science. And then I made a shift where I wanted to be able to share science with other people. So I went into publishing and there's just not that many people who look like me either. It's not that I choose it that way. It's just that that's what I want to do. And it's for the reasons that we just discussed. I think it's I think people should know science and I'm trying to figure out other ways, other venues, vehicles to get science to them. And I know publishing is a great way to do that. So, yes, I'm in the publishing world. And according to the most recent report that I saw from Lee and Lowe on the editorial side, it's 85 percent white. And so that means that the stories that you may have may not find a home because it's really a subjective, very subjective industry. It really depends on if the editor likes it and if they get it before they can, you know, so they can advocate it so that it can go out into the world. So there are there are a lot of barriers. But again, as we just mentioned a moment ago, you've just got to use your small axe. And right now is a good time, actually, for people of color, uh, given the lot of upheaval and unrest. People are actually doing a little bit more self-analysis and looking at their own amount of diversity. So they're more willing to explore when an author doesn't necessarily look like them. And so in this window, I'm going to produce and publish as much as I can. But yeah, each one of these industries that's important to us, it's important to me specifically of science and of publishing, uh, really lacks representation. But in order to change that, I have to keep fighting. Well, we're glad that you're fighting because it also opens up possibilities, particularly for kids and young people to be exposed to different stories. And too often, Anissa, I think that even when people mean well, especially because of this broader social upheaval that has many people doing this reflection of where they are, even when they mean well, sometimes there's a harm in the kinds of stories, not that the stories that are told, but the variety of those stories. And so when most of the stories that are told are about pain and about trauma and about suffering, 
it doesn't necessarily affirm the fullness of community. Do you see your role in terms of the work that you're doing to publish in these spaces, particularly around kids' books, as also countering that singular narrative or that monolithic view of communities that often are underrepresented there? I certainly do. And I agree that a lot of books, especially books written by Black authors or that are published by Black authors, tend to focus on trauma. And I'm, I'm seeing it just in my day to day, because when I'm at the supermarket, you know, someone will come up to me and they will want to tell me their sad story. Like I'm a trauma magnet. And who wants to live in a world like that? So I actually think that it's important for us to share stories that are not about trauma. I'm just a geeky little kid who wants to share with you science. And so I'm going to focus on that. Uh, will I mention trauma? Well, occasionally, but that's not that's not my bag. And I think that's okay. That doesn't make me uh, less African-American. There's a there's a broad range of the black experience. And I think that we need to write about that. And also, I will also add that, as we mentioned at the top, that my book has been recognized for with a couple of prizes. I'm not resting on my laurels. I'm using that as a case to public to publishers. It's like, look, look what you can do if you open up the doors and allow more African-Americans, people of color to write books. Uh, this is what you're missing if you don't do this. You'll have other books that succeed like this. It's work. It's it's there's work of being the author of writing these things. It's of being committed to what you want to write about, even though it may not be the topic du jour. You you focus on the thing that uh, is important to you. And for me, that's science and making science fun. And and you make sure that you keep the door open so that the generation before you, uh, after you rather, has an easier time. You talk about this calling that you have, the work that you're doing, the commitment that you have to do it. And what comes through all of that, Anissa, is this focus, this dual focus on joy and possibility. And in how in telling these stories, the fullness of those stories, it also communicates the tremendous joy that many people experience, whether it's through exploration, invention, or the connection. And so we we always like to think about that theme here on Disrupted. So I have to ask you, Anissa, what brings you joy? Oh, what brings me joy? Oh, I just love learning. And I love what brings me joy is if when I find something and I share it with someone and they give me this look that is awe, a moment of awe. I live for that moment. And so I look for ways to generate more of that, to do a better job of generating that experience. So what gives me joy is that it's just a way of connecting. And the way that I connect is to do that through the vehicle of science. Dr. Anissa Ramirez is a science evangelist and author of The Alchemy of Us, How Humans and Matter Transformed One Another. Thank you, Anissa. Oh, thank you. Disrupted is produced by James Scoble Wolf, Shekinah Collier, and Katie Tularski. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week.